I don't know what's real. I don't know what's not real. Limited Capacity is a collection of six darkly amusing stories about the mysterious ways we interact with the internet and with each other. There's something going on with him. It's like an act. I don't trust him. What? You're staring at me like I should say something, but I don't really know what to do here. That's the whole name of the game. Don't talk about how the town isn't real. Do you understand? Limited Capacity. Available now on CBC Listen or wherever you get your podcasts. This is a CBC Podcast. This is Play Me, your digital theater. We transform the hottest contemporary plays into bingeable audio dramas. I'm Laura Mullen. And I'm Chris Tolley. Welcome to Play Me, your ticket to some of the hottest shows by award-winning playwrights. We are back with our interview with Zorana Sadek, the award-winning playwright and performer behind the hit show Mixtape. So this next interview is something that's really close to my heart because it deals with a subject that both you and I are really interested in and one that we don't get to talk that much about, the subject of sound. Really? Because, Chris, I feel like we're always talking about sound, in particular, room tone. Or I should say, (laughs) you're always talking about room tone. It's true. It's just so important because when we're recording things like these introductions to the show, or even the actors when they're performing in the plays, it's so important that we get just the sound of the voice and nothing else. And things like walls and furniture can reflect the voice and can really change how the voice sounds. And if I can just add like like little things like uh, a furnace going or the hum of a computer or or construction noise going on outside, it's it's actually really hard to get a nice, clean uh, space in order to record. OK, so, Chris, how does our room tone sound now? Mm, I sound perfect. You sound like you're in your closet in your bedroom. That's because I am. Yeah. Listening is what playwright Zorana Sadik thinks we need to do more of. She wants us to pay close attention to the things we hear. And that's why she wrote this play. It's about her obsession with music and sound. Zorana is a classical musician, but she's also a writer and an award-winning actor. A multidisciplinary artist of Pakistani descent, her work spans different types of performances, including theatre, radio, television, chamber music, modern opera, and new music. Laura had a chance to sit down with Sarana and talk about her memories of making mixtapes as a kid, how her very personal story had an impact on others, and why she thinks everyone has the ability to sing. This is my interview with playwright and performer Zorana Sadik. I want to start by thanking you for immersing me back into my childhood and the memories of cassette players and making mixtapes. I had forgotten, to be honest, about that time and that specific act of making a tape. I'm just wondering, particularly for people from Gen X, what their reaction is to the show and that aspect of it. When you say you had forgotten about that, do you mean you had forgotten about the actual sort of mechanical act of making those mixtapes? Yeah, I had. I think 
back to that era, I think about music videos <laughs> and I think about the music and, and, and my life, but I've forgotten about how I listened to music and mm-hmm. that I couldn't access it on my phone at any moment. And I think about how, you know, my daughter and I'm sure your son, mm-hmm. that, that that is a very different experience for them because everything is at their fingertips. They don't have to save up to buy that cassette tape and they don't have to wait on the radio. So I think just the specialness of uh, specific songs and the act of recording them was gone for me. Right. So I think there's this thing about intentionality with the choice of music even though it was much more hard won for all of us, we had to go get the tape. We had to, you know, or wait for it to come on the radio. We had to do far more to make a bid for what we wanted. But I think in the act of all of that, and even just the clumsiness of making those mixtapes, you know, there was nothing invisible and seamless about it. And curation, like the curation of music, I mean, I suppose it happened in different ways and it certainly happened in terms of what you heard on the radio, like the sequence of songs or the top 40s or but just that intentionality, I think it sort of stirred up a little bit of like, yeah, we were that was pretty impressive that we all it was that important to us. And I certainly don't mean that music is not important to young people now because it, it is as important as it has ever been. And there's really exciting things happening with young people and their taste and just There's such a huge array of what they can access that we didn't have. But I think it's something that we all kind of miss a little bit. And there's no way to go back. It's like walking back a taxi app. Like you just can't, you can't go back to it. It also seems to be something in the air right now about a nostalgia for that time that's not just our generation, I don't think. Mm -hmm. Like for example, like even the music itself from that time, my daughter said, oh, I'd love to go and see, my daughter's 16, I'd love to go see The Cure. And I'm like, I'd love to go see The Cure. Mm-hmm. And we we can't because it seems like every Gen Z and, and Gen Xer that could get a ticket is going. Mm. I also noticed that there is an interest in VCRs, uh, right. old phones. Right, right, right. So what do you think about that? Do you think that there was something about the music or a simpler time? But why do you think that that era is so in the zeitgeist right now. I don't know. I guess I think that ever was it thus. Like when we were kids, our parents were sometimes playing Elvis for us and playing, I mean, anonymous grooves of the time. But like, I just remember there was a reach back even then. I guess you're lucky if you have parents you think are cool enough that you want to ask them what they like. I mean, my son certainly has a thing for like stadium rock and like rush I feel like mixtapes have been quite romanticized over the years, particularly as a way of expressing feelings for crushes. Tommy, did you ever make mixtapes for other people? I did make them for friends. I used to make sort of talking mixtapes for friends who would go to camp because I never went to overnight camp and desperately wanted to. And so a way of kind of going along with a friend who would go every year would be that I'd make the playlist, which is, of course, the most important thing about that mixtape, but then I would talk in between the songs, which arguably is a little bit what I ended up doing in making this play. But I now think it must have been so irritating to be in the groove of the songs and then have, you know, chitter-chatter with middling sound quality and the hiss of the tape. You know, because remember, like, recording live from one of those double tape, the sound wasn't great. You could hear the press of the button and 
But uh, I did. I made them for friends. I don't remember making them for... Ah, uh, that's not true. I did make a mixtape or two for a boyfriend. But more, I made mixtapes for myself to quell broken hearts. Mm, yes. Or for friends and their broken hearts. Right, right. Yeah, a lot of broken hearts. Some of the songs that you reference and the artists that you reference, yeah. like Kate Bush, yeah. George Michael, The Dream Academy... Just the naming of those songs kind of gives me the goosebumps. And there's just that time in your life when you're an adolescent and going from being a child and your journey to adulthood, those songs cement in you in a way that other songs don't. Can you talk a little bit about how music specifically influenced you when you were young? Oh, absolutely. I mean, it is interesting, you know, like music and when we hear music, it, it activates our limbic system. So we might remember the time, like summer of 89, but we also often remember the feeling of that song. And that's very powerful. That's a full on time machine situation, right? So the reason I started to write this play is that about seven years before I started writing it, I did a concert of songs by Kate Bush, Prince and Radiohead that had been sort of my first loves, but I did them as a classical soprano with a small chamber ensemble. And it was really interesting. It's not, you know, lots of people do that, do Radiohead for classical piano or it's no um, new thing. But what was really interesting to me is that when I put my voice back into them with my now classical instrument, I had this weird scratching, gnawing realization that the songs felt like autobiography. It's the only way I can put it. And I don't mean so much because of what they were about, or I don't really mean the text even. I mean the canvas of the music itself contained within it things that I can only describe as autobiographical. And I don't think I'm alone in that feeling, but it was what made me go, oh, I think maybe. And then I had great encouragement from wonderful colleagues in, you know, other theater artists and directors and who saw that concert and said, I think there's more questions. There are more questions around that. And there's some interesting investigation there. I think that transporting quality of songs that we love, it's more than nostalgia. It's a body memory. Yeah, because you can look at a picture from your younger self, right? Mm -hmm. But it it's not the same as when you hear a song. Like, you, you're right. You remember where you were. And and even more than that, you remember how you felt. And sometimes I don't want to hear old songs because I, not that there's anything terrible to remember, but sometimes it's it's too much. Yes. Yes. And it's funny because I think a lot about the senses and the different senses. And I kind of, you know, sort of tongue in cheek, make a real bid for like, you know, sound being the most important, the most sophisticated, the most influential. But there really isn't any other sense like that, except for occasionally smell. Like when you smell your grandmother's perfume or you smell the mothballs from your summer cottage or whatever the, but it is, it's sideswiping. And uh, that's pretty amazing that it can do that. And I know that you have studied music for many years and your play is part scientific inquiry and you do cover it a little bit, but can you talk a little bit about your research and why that might be? Yeah, I, you know, I've gotten this question before and I always feel like such a fraud because I've got to say, and I think that writers can relate to this, you know, I plumb the science purely with an eye for the poetry of it. So 
the fact that there is an echo that is made in your mind and that's how you remember sound, that you keep it because it goes away and you can't see it over and over and over again like you can with the eye. You know, that was very interesting to me, the poetics of that. And so I was really interlopery on the science, meaning that I would read about it. And I, I did go down a big rabbit hole at a certain point, and then I could feel the utility and the tautness of the science leaving, right? Because then it does become like a TED Talk. I mean, I am passionate about it, so I'm happy to sort of lecture you on the realities of science and how the ear works. But it was really sort of that these little factoids about sound would just kind of knock me flat in their truth and the way they without me knowing it, supported this narrative that I wanted to share. Yeah, as a someone experiencing your show, I really appreciated all those scientific details and any of the aspects that were TED Talk-like or informative, because I would say that, he, not hearing, but sound is probably my biggest weakness and that I can't sing, I don't play an instrument. I almost feel like I know some people are colorblind. Mm. And I would say that I almost feel a little bit like that with sound. Like if someone said that's whatever note that is or whatever, or replicate that note, I can't. Uh So I appreciated the inclusion into sound, whereas I don't really understand music, but I did appreciate being asked to listen in a deeper way. And so this morning, my husband was like, making breakfast. I could hear him downstairs and there was like a murmur of the clink of um, glasses and and stuff. And I'm like, that reminds me of like being on vacation and being in like a restaurant in the morning before you set off your day. And so, yeah. And I know that you are very highly attuned to sound, Mm -hmm. not just music. Mm -hmm. Can you tell me what that's like? The pros and the cons of that. So the cons are, and this is a weird one, that background music is impossible for me. And so many people, and how lovely, have music on all the time, music while they're working, while they're writing, while they're... So that would be like if I was reading a book and someone else was reading another book out loud while I was reading the book. Like that's... There's too much narrative in it for me to put it to the side. So that's like a bit annoying for my family, for instance, who, like most normal people, like music on. And so, you know, we we always have constant negotiation around that. I'm a collector of sounds that I find beautiful that are not music. Wind in particular and wind through trees and water is just ridiculous, like how much you can hear in water. Just uh, last weekend, we were in High Park going for a walk. The weather was okay. And the bird song was just off the charts. I feel quite lucky about that. It's really lovely and dimensionalizing to hear those sounds and be kind of a collector of those sounds. And I think just as you just described, I think we all, again, these things that I do are things that I do, but I think to some extent we all do these things and uh, have those associations that we're aware of and not aware of. A familiar soundscape a non-musical one, let's say, the din of a noisy restaurant, friends laughing on a dock at the end of a dock over a lake. All of those textures are very evocative for us. And I sometimes feel we're not even aware of how we're being affected by those soundscapes. And when you did this show originally and what it's intended for, it's a live stage production, which is visual in that we get to uh, watch you on stage But for this, for Play Me, it's an auditory experience. 
you know, when we're talking to students and to fellow artists, we're always talking about the power of the imagination when you pair it with sound. Mm. Do you feel like that we don't pay enough attention? We're in a very visual world that we don't hit enough attention to what we're hearing? Yes. And I feel like there's a, and of course I love seeing beautiful things, art and films, and I love what my eyes can do. I'd be lost without them, obviously. But Zoom is a perfect example. Like, why do I need to see a person with bad picture quality and then laggy (laughs) sound? I don't need to see your face looking at me. I think I can hear everything I need in your voice, all the communication. I went to see um, a big Bach piece uh, a couple nights ago, and there were video projections above the choir and the orchestra going. They were beautiful. They were illuminations of a book uh, and beautiful. But I, I don't know why I need that further stimulus. I'm super picky about that. I also, on the flip side, really dislike overscoring of movies and films. I just feel like ugh, I don't need that. I've got it. The, let the actors do it. Let the cinematography do it. I know that you trained as a classical singer for many years, and then you had this instructor say the really awful thing to you that you would never be a world-class singer, which is, you know, just seems so cruel to a young person who's just starting out. I just wanted to know, was that your dream? I don't know, man. Like that's, I feel like it was all, there's this thing about zero to Carnegie Hall, like that's a way to describe classical training, right? And I think there were so few examples of people, how do I mean to say this? Not few examples. There was like one path, right? And there was no internet and there was no do it yourself and no put yourself on YouTube and no, not so much mix this style with this style. So that's what you saw as the thing. And for sure, that would have been good. And I I did sing some, you know, exciting things. And I loved those opportunities that I got and the work that I did in, at Tanglewood or, you know, like I did exciting things. But I, the world-class singer part, I think at the time, both crushed me and made me go, is that what would make me happy? Fame is, of course, a different thing. And in a way, that's what she was talking about. And I think when you're young, maybe everybody wants to be famous. I don't know. But it was confusing to me that I was both insulted that someone would ever say that to you, but also felt a bit like, is there something wrong with me, though, that I have a bit of a question mark around that being the goal? But I don't know. Even as I say that, I think like, of course you want to be. If world class means you get to work with the best orchestras and the most amazing conductors and people at the top of their game, of course I wanted that. I guess what struck me about that, I was just listening to that third part of the episode today. Mm. And what struck me about that is we all have dreams, Mm -hmm. right? And maybe our dreams will be achieved or maybe they'll change or, Mm -hmm. or maybe we won't get them. But for somebody, in this case, your instructor to say, Zorana, you'll never be a world class singer. What a crushing thing. to hear. Yes, but every artist has a story like this. Like, find me one artist, painter, dancer, that doesn't have this damn story about someone going, it's garbage. Or not even it's garbage, but like some worse kind of placating, patronizing. Like, I think if you don't get that, if you don't get everything handed to you, I don't know that you have fire in your belly. I know actually some excellent singers whose careers came to them very easily and they eventually did stop singing. I think you do need a little bit of activation of the fire there. If it doesn't crush you, which it does to many, then it can be useful. You got to know what you don't want. And I will say, I don't talk about it in the show, but I taught voice for many years. 
And it was very helpful for me to have that negative outline and think it's really important to me that I not mistake myself for some kind of absolute judge with these young, beautiful voices. It's just not my place. It's ridiculous, actually. How can anybody say? So, yeah. I guess you're right. Like, if that was going to crush you, then she would be right. You shouldn't be pursuing this because you wouldn't have the stuff. But I just question why a teacher would say that to somebody when they're just starting out. And and I wanted to ask you, as someone who I know does teach, because so many people take music for a variety of reasons. And I'm sure you encounter people that have oodles of talent and others that just enjoy it. Mm -hmm. Would you ever clarify for somebody what you think their ability is, or would you not do that? I would say... And again, I'm not teaching at the university level where there are going to be young people paying scores and scores of money to pursue a master's degree or like really take on great financial risk. That's a different kind of teacher for whom maybe that question and answering that question in that kind of traditional way is important. So just to frame it properly, I only taught kids from about 13 to 18, which is a great age to teach, but there are different stakes there, right? But I would say that I would never say that now. And in fact, I understand a parent asking that question, but I mean, this could be just a whole other conversation, but it's really about the artistic health of people, in particular, young people. So are we giving them tools to express themselves and to have an external thing to do to reflect back to them who they are and what they want and what they like? And so that's so important whether or not that measures up to some accepted commercial potentially standard is a different thing. And also, what you definitely don't know is whether that person is so married to creativity and the expression of it that they will be an artist. You can't tell that. I'm Laura Mullen, and I'm here with playwright Zorana Sadik. We'll be right back. I don't know what's real. I don't know what's not real. Limited Capacity is a collection of six darkly amusing stories about the mysterious ways we interact with the internet and with each other. There's something going on with him. It's like an act. I don't trust him. What? You're staring at me like I should say something, but I don't really know what to do here. That's the whole name of the game. Don't talk about how the town isn't real. Do you understand? Limited Capacity. Available now on CBC Listen or wherever you get your podcasts. There is that thing of like, well, I'm not good at it, yeah. so I shouldn't do it. And I mean, obviously, there are people that are going to pursue it professionally, and you would hope that they would be good at it. But for the majority of us, I feel like it's a barrier Mm -hmm. to feel like just because you aren't particularly gifted in something doesn't mean that you can't express yourself in music or in any other art form. Yeah. Do you ever see kids come that like have... No sort of quote unquote talent, but that they're getting something so much more from it. Absolutely. Absolutely. There were kids who, you know, had trouble matching pitch or there were kids who just couldn't kind of inhabit enough energetic push in their in relation to their breath. So the kids who were there because their parents wanted them to take lessons, who were disinterested and maybe even a little bit embarrassed to put a voice out there. Those kids would be the kids who I would sometimes say, I think they would like to play the drums or I think they might be some other because they just actually wasn't pleasurable for them to do that. 
But kids who would lose themselves in musical expression and be sort of transported by it, that's a win. That is a win for a teacher. And uh, I also have students who've gone on to have really great operatic success. And that is amazing, too. Of course, that's a delight. But I think when they get lost in it, your job is done. I feel that with my son, too. When when he sits down to do a piano practice and he dutifully does his stuff and then he starts messing about and loses track of time because he's just there exploring, that is success because it means he's starting to get I know it's not the right word to use, but a little bit of an addiction to what it feels like to imagine and dream in the space of sound. And that's just, we should all have that. We had it when we were little kids. We made all these sounds, right? And we felt pleasure in making those sounds and we cried and we imitated our parents before we could speak. We just lose that. It gets socialized out of us. So I I actually think it's not even the younger the kid is, the more they remember what it was like to just always be exploring with sound. I went to karaoke a little while ago and I I got talked into it and I got up there and I sang and I was so disappointed (laughs) in that the sound I want to make Ah. is not coming out. And I just want to know, like, what does it feel like to be able to sing? (laughs) Well, you can sing. So I get what you're saying, because I have that, for instance, with any kind of dance where I feel like a superstar. And then I look in a mirror on a video and be like, what on earth? She should sit down. So there's sort of two different things. And I think like often people who sing in choirs, church choirs and things where they never hear their voice back and they just are enjoying themselves. That's what it feels like. But I will say that the cultivated sort of high wire act of singing classically is extremely pleasing. It's got an airborne, kinetic, electric feel to it. And you do feel, I don't mean you're always in the state when you're gigging, but you can feel really airborne. It's really delicious. And I think once you get a taste of it, it's really seductive. This play is about sound and your relationship to it, but it's also a very personal play about your life. Mm -hmm. And I I imagine that might have been a little bit scary to put your life out there like that. Can you talk about making the decision to kind of go for it and sort of, you know, be really honest about some difficult things? Yeah. So when I first started working on this show, so I worked with Chris Abraham at Crow's Theatre. He was the dramaturg for this piece and just a very uh, good egg in the early sort of encouragement of it. And I really was like, I'm going to make this like really geeky piece about sound. It's just going to be about sound and just sounds and music and and like this cool, modern, I could even sort of see the set for it. It was a very comfortable sort of play about my zealotry around sound, which is a true thing. And certainly as we would have these long discussions about why, in fact, I was so interested and passionate about this and that, as it is with anybody, it's your sort of personal involvement with it. You know, how you come to engage with these things is through a life. And so slowly the writing started to take on a personal note. And I think the whole time I was thinking, at the beginning anyway, I'll just write it all out. And then I can just circle that part that I like, but I need to get like a running start and a running ending on it. So I'm just going to write all the margins of it. 
And of course, the margins came closer and closer to the center. And I think actually, some people are lucky enough to have an actual revelation in the moments of creation. And in writing this play, I realized some things that had never occurred to me, just in the actual act of making it about myself and sound. And that's uh, that's a great privilege to have that happen. And because I imagine that there are people that can relate to some of the themes Mm. that are in your play. I know from my own experience, when you share something personal about yourself, you put it out there and then you might think, well, I'm done with that. Yes. But other people have received it. Yes. Can you talk about what it's like to have people respond? Oh, the response is just something I just didn't even predict how meaningful it would be far more than having put it on the stage is that it would exist in people's minds after the show. And I would see them and they would remember something and talk to me about it. That just seemed like unbelievably lucky to be able to have that happen. So I had lots of people. I think somebody, uh, my sort of my most profound moment, one of them was that somebody said to me afterwards, oh, yes, artist orphans. And I just thought, oh, my goodness, right. That is that's a real that's a very efficient way to talk about the kinds of people that gravitate towards creativity and how it is much more than a functional thing, but a necessary thing for us. And that in some cases, it really builds us and brings us up. I also had this incredible thing. A man came to see the show. He was blind and He came up to me in the lobby afterwards and he said, my partner came to see the show and she said, I think you're really going to like this show. It's about sound. And he said, you know, I always go on and on about how I'm so lucky that I have sound, but I had gotten in truth numb to it for a while. And I was so glad to see your play because it reminded me of the vivacity of it. And I was very moved by that. Those things blow you away. I mean, that's what you want is to engage. Uh, you want people to put the story into their own machinery and have have an engagement with it of their own, you know, and for my story just to be the vessel for that. And that's the theory anyway that you go in with. But whether it succeeds or not depends on who reflects it back to you with their own experience, which I got a lot of. A lot of the show is not just about sound, but around the idea of being great. Mm -hmm. And I know that you're a mom now. And I just wonder as mom to mom, how you walk that line of encouragement without being overbearing and snuffing out the things that you're like, you talked about your son playing the piano. Yeah. And obviously music is your thing. Do you find yourself biting your tongue? (laughs) My husband would come in and answer this in a very different way. But um, I mean, I have had to put all musicians have this experience when their children are doing music, just to be very specific about the example of music and my son, for instance. Nobody can teach their own kid. It's just a gong show. And you just can't do it, obviously. So I have had to put limitations around my behavior with him because I don't care if he is a world class pianist. I really want him to have this tool of expression his whole life. And it has brought me such joy that I think, how could I not want this for you? And by the way, if it was piano or painting or dancing, it wouldn't matter to me. It just so happens he has an insanely good ear and just picked things up very quickly. And it just so happens he's musical. 
and just has the kind of wherewithal to put things together very quickly in a way that it was not as quick for me at his age, for instance. Maybe we all say this about our kids, but okay. So mediocre and great. So I think, I think that's the old fashioned question and we are children of our parents. So we, of course, were brought up with that idea and I think it's not whether you were great or mediocre, it's whether you were true, whether you could be open to the thing that inspired you and put the full force of your attention and energy in it, whatever that meant at the appropriate time in your age, right? It's not appropriate to practice six hours a day as an 11-year-old. I mean, I'm sure there's somebody that does that, but right, like to scale that appropriateness, which is tricky as a parent, but and I don't think I'm being like naive here. The question is not great or mediocre. It's are you honoring the true you and putting all of the energy behind it that you can? And I'll tell you that a frequent thing that I feel quietly as a parent is, is he being challenged enough? And I really have to struggle with this because, again, I was brought up with, you know, hard, hard work. That's how you do it. And either you are great or you are mediocre. And I think that even that idea, although I can't help it as a parent, just honestly, I can't help but feel that, I think it's not the right question. So I'm not succeeding at this. I have no advice for anyone. (laughs) Like I have, you know, like quiet moments of like, and, and, and sometimes not quiet. Like sometimes I just get it wrong. But I don't think it's the right question. I think the question is about your passion and your openness for it. I think that's it. I want to thank you so much. I really love this piece. I love the writing of it and I connected to it on a bunch of unexpected levels. And I know that because it is involving sound, it's a big leap to put it into this format. And I appreciate you letting us share it with our listeners in this way. Well, thank you. It's actually been a, a real joy to test my actual theory, to, like to put my money where my mouth is, so to speak, and be like, just through the years, friends, just through the years. So I can't really think of a more perfect uh, evolution of it to be able to put it in just inside people's ears. That was playwright and performer Zorana Sadik talking about her hit play mixtape. You can hear the play anytime on Play Me. And you can catch Zorana in Wildfire by David Paquette and translated by Liana Brody anytime on our podcast. And we'll be back next with the Governor General award-winning play Where the Blood Mixes by Kevin Loring. Floyd is a man who has lost everything he holds most dear. Now, after more than two decades, his daughter Christine returns home to confront him. Set during the salmon run, Where the Blood Mixes takes us to the bottom of the river and to the heart of a people. And don't forget you can listen to Play Me on CBC Radio every Sunday night at 9 and Wednesday at 11. Thanks for listening. We'd love to know what you think about Play Me. You can connect with us by emailing playme at cbc.ca. And if you haven't already, please subscribe to Play Me through Google or Apple Podcasts. By subscribing, you can listen to all our past shows and you won't miss a single one of our new episodes. And while you're there, we would love it if you would consider rating and reviewing us. It helps spread the word about our podcast, bringing theatre to a whole new audience. Play Me is produced by Laura Mullen and Chris Tolley in partnership with CBC Podcasts. Our associate producer is Mary Chris Rivera. 
A special thanks to our CBC team. Anna Ashate is our digital producer, and our executive producer is Cecil Fernandez. The director of CBC Podcasts is Arif Narani, and the executive director is Leslie Merklinger. Play Me is funded by the Canada Council for the Arts and the Ontario Arts Council. Play Me is an Expect Theatre production. For more information about our plays, please visit playmepodcast.com. For more CBC Podcasts, go to cbc.ca slash podcasts.